Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the third episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm joined here with Claire Bevan. Today, we're going to be talking about being truthful and being successful. While we might think that being truthful is the pathway to success, a lot of us have, have extreme levels of difficulty with admitting that they are wrong, admitting that they don't know something, and seeing another person's point of view. In an article in Forbes magazine, What's More Important to You, Being Effective or Being Right, Amy Douglas talks about micromanaging bosses who control their work environments, outline how everything should be done, and expecting that their employees act just so. Amy points out that when we micromanage everything, when we're unable to admit that we're wrong, this actually leads to a decrease in productivity. Employees are very scared of expressing their ideas. They're afraid to innovate. And they're afraid to question their boss when they think that something is being done incorrectly. To be a boss, we often think that we must have all the answers, that the boss is all-knowing and can answer and solve just about any issue. It is a very unsettling concept in our culture for people with positions of authority to apologize or admit that they may not know something. However, if history has taught us anything, some of our most successful people have risen to the top by course correcting and altering the way that they did things. I have been a bike rider for many years. I've ridden my bike all over the city, into Manhattan and in my native Queens. One day, I was riding my bike through Casina Park and a gentleman stopped me and he said, come here. I immediately got off my bike and he said, do you wanna ride your bike better? And I said, okay. And he told me, raise your bike seat one inch and I guarantee you, your legs are gonna feel much better. The stranger then walked away. I thought about it and I decided, why not give it a try? I immediately unfastened the seat and raised it an inch. Immediately, I could see that my bike ride was so much better. I was able to get around the city a lot quicker. My legs did not hurt. I didn't have calf pain. All because I decided to listen to a stranger. Now, I had been riding a bike for many years. And my ego was slightly bruised when he told me that I needed to raise my bike seat. But was I going to allow my ego to prevent me from getting a better form of exercise? When I was 15, I probably would not have raised the seat. I probably would have not been able to comprehend that my ego had just been shattered and I would not have been able to reconcile the embarrassment. But as we mature and as we get older, we need to learn how we can take these experiences and create a more successful pathway for ourselves. I'm going to turn it over to Claire, who's going to tell us the importance of being radically open-minded. When I first started to think about this question of being right versus being successful, um, first author that popped into my mind was Ray Dalio um, and his kind of notion of radical open-mindedness and honesty. Um, Dalio says that there's two sort of central things that stand in most people's way of getting what they want out of life. And these barriers aren't just external, they're really part of our brain structure. Um, and so the first barrier is just our own ego. He calls it the ego barrier. And this is, is a subliminal, it's sort of an age old defense mechanism um, that makes it harder for us to kind of accept our weaknesses. And he says that this, this sort of instinctual ego centered part of us, this resides is in the, in the most primitive parts of the brain. Um, this calls the kind of Kahneman's system one part of your brain, which is that more instinctual, emotional, animal centered part of your brain. It's also the one that's far older. It's the one that we, the part of our brain that we share with 
um, you know, animal species and, and who knows kind of what, what other creatures. Um, and so this is a part of our brain that we're battling when we're approaching life, when we're making decisions, it's influencing us and yet we're blind to it. It's kind of a blind to us. And so in this way, these kind of two U's control our brains when we're having a conversation or whether we're trying to get what we want out of life. Um, we're constantly being kind of, it's our, our Dr. Jekyll and our Mr. Hyde fighting between um, this animal and extinctual part of our brains and then just a more measured, gathered, analytical um, part of our brains. And naturally there's blind spots there. Um, we can't really see, we can't appreciate what we can't see. And so part of being radical, radically open-minded, as Dalio says, is to open our eyes to those potential blind spots. He says, if you can recognize that you have blind spots and be open-minded to, to considering the possibility that others might just know something better than you, then you're already aligning yourself to be better, you know, better equipped to make those kinds of big decisions. You know, absolutely, Claire. I actually kind of want to bring it back to the idea of survival. In our ancient uh, hunter-gatherer societies, I imagine being wrong was the difference between eating and not eating. So how, how clear can we kind of like, I think that's like a healthy way to keep in the back of our mind. Like when we're wrong about something, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to go hungry anymore. What do you say to that, Claire? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's part of the natural evolution as we moved away from creatures who were, you know, at every meal sort of kind of hunting for our survival, um, that delayed gratification, I think, has allowed us to create new sort of structures or responses to be more measured in the way that we just ap appreciate life. Um, and I think that that, you know, as we've developed consciousness throughout that evolution, it has allowed us and, and we really, we, I would only hope to recognize those signs of closed mindedness, to recognize those more ego driven kind of responses and also recognize the signs of open, open mindedness and really kind of push toward those. Um, so it, it certainly is, um, has not always been the same probably through human history. You know, let's also talk about this notion of, of our blind spots, for example. If we fail to acknowledge that we have blind spots, what is the consequence of that? Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, you know, our mix of blind spots creates our interaction, our perception of reality. So what we're sort of doing when we pretend like those blind spots don't exist or we aren't even sort of open to the notion that they do is we're limiting potential that could come from being open. Um, and I think that, you know, being open to, to failure potentially to going down a path that might not be as safe. Um, and so I think there is a safety associated to just sticking to your path and kind of avoiding blind spots, avoiding the peripheral. Um, but often it's through that chaos, through that battle that, um, you know, the fruit is to be found. And I, I think from an instinctual perspective, us as humans love predictability. Like when we went hunting, we kind of liked hunting in the same spot over and over, assuming it yielded food, right? I mean, like if we knew that there's, oh, there's always a wild buffalo behind that tree. We love that. We love certainty and we love predictability for our survival. But if we don't recognize the truth around us that, hey, the buffalo in this area are starting to thin out. We may need to go somewhere else. It actually does jeopardize our survival. Like if I had not acknowledged the blind spot of my bike seat not being properly adjusted, maybe over time I would have done damage to my legs or, or maybe my back would have started hurting or something bad would have happened to me. Whereas when I realized I was vulnerable and when I realized that I had a blind spot, it now opens up new possibilities and new opportunities to succeed in what I was doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think sustainability is such an important element of, 
of our lives and of sort of human evolution is how can we do the thing that's the most beneficial for the longest amount of time um, and uh, you know being able to acknowledge those blind spots I think is a, a huge element of that. I think one of the reasons and, and for us it seems like common sense like oh I'm really bad at this I ought to listen to somebody to improve but I think in our life we have this fear that we're going to be embarrassed in front of others or you know as 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 some like anthropologists might say, we're going to fall down the social hierarchy or the dominance hierarchy. If I'm wrong about something, I become embarrassed. And my, my, not only is my ego weakened, I have a less elevated status in that of my peers or my contemporaries, and they're not going to listen to me in the future. So if I admit, let's just say I'm a boss of a company and I make an executive decision and that executive decision is a failure. If I go in front of my employees uh, the following month and say, folks, I made a bad call. I apologize. We have this like fear that those people will no longer see us as a form of legitimacy anymore and no longer as a protector or the one with the answers. Do you think that maybe that fear has some truth to it? Like maybe that fear is coming from a positive place or do you, do you think it's just not grounded at all, Claire? Humility is extremely powerful. Um, and you know, Peterson talks about the example of wolves fighting and even the strongest wolf will at the end of that battle kind of lay on their stomach and expose, that, expose their stomach in a kind of show of vulnerability. And leveraging that or really knowing that the power of that vulnerability, I think is a really effective tool in life. And I often find, you know, coming back from a situation and apologizing and really looking at it truthfully and presenting that to someone else gets you, you know, builds a little bit of a bond between you that gets you even stronger than if you had just hadn't done something wrong in the first place. And so I do think there's also just the idea of sort of game theory of you can't win a game every single time at the end of the day that people aren't going to find it fun anymore. There's a sportsmanship here element to life. Um, so I do think that that, that vulnerability is extremely powerful, but when probably when used appropriately. Right. And, and, um, you know, I, I love self-deprecating humor. It's awesome. But we all know that person that like every single joke is just a, a and, and it just doesn't sit right after a long time, you know? I think there's a balance in knowing, like all things, when to, um, to, show, to show, show, show some transparency. You know, I love the example used with wolves. I, I also think of chimps. Many people think that chimps, for example, are these really vicious, like, dominating animals. And to some degree, that's true. But what they fail to point out is that when one chimp loses a physical altercation, he will often groom and like clean his opponent's fur. And this is kind of a way that they reconcile with one another. And it's a way that chimps show each other, hey, you still have a place here. Just because we, you lost that physical altercation with me, you still have a place here. You're still loved. This is still your community. And I think we, we kind of need that in, in human interactions. Like just because you lose an argument with somebody doesn't mean that you no longer have any value within that company or within your family or within your social circle. I also want to mention what you said about sports and sportsmanship. I feel like right now sportsmanship is on an utter and complete decline. Like we see all of these players and they catch the football in the touchdown zone and they're like going crazy and wild and celebrating. And there isn't like a level of humility when we win arguments. And I think that if we kind of get really excited when we win, it hurts that much more when we lose. When, so I think, I think there's also this notion of being a very gracious winner. Like if I win an argument with you and I say, hey, you made some really good points, but I still think we're going in this direction, you kind of allow the person you're arguing with to save face and maybe acknowledge that they put up a valiant battle. Yeah, absolutely. And it just made me flash to the, just the idea of the ice skater in the rink bowing to the audience, right? There is a final, you know, 
sign of humility to just the game and whatever is at stake, whether it's the nation or the city or whatever, you know, that greater meaning is, you know, we like those. I mean, I'm an LA fan, so everything is so Kobe related to me, but to me, that's the sort of a big legend of Kobe is, is his love for his city or the game or something, something a bit larger than just his kind of magical abilities to put balls into hoops. Yes. You know, I, I, I come from like martial arts and mm. there's always this idea of like bowing to one another, especially like if right. you do Taekwondo and it's like the ultimate sign of showmanship and respect. And I think when you bow to somebody or you shake hands, you have some kind of gesture like, Hey, good game. I think that when you lose, it doesn't feel as bad because there, there isn't this like showboaty, you know, I dominated you. And I, I think that in, in our sports and in our social interactions and, and like when you even look at the titles of YouTube videos, like, you know, so-and-so dominates or destroys this person. It, it's like we celebrate victory too much and it kind of like destroys the person that lost. And it's, mm. it's having a damage on our society because people, people are now afraid to speak up because they're afraid that they're just going to be destroyed. Yeah. You, you know, life is so many different little games. You know, it's this big war with a ton of little battles in it and losing some is just going to be part of it. And you, and, and I think, you know, I think with, with the rise of sort of entrepreneurship, people are kind of taking more value in losing a little bit and kind of failing fast and all of those concepts, but it's always with a, still a show of face, you know, and, and, and um, in this, in this pursuit of some sort of art or something bigger. Um, But yeah, I I do. I, you know, I I love a good comeback story or an, uh, the underdog, like that's really where true kind of meaning can be found. I hope. No doubt. Dale Carnegie, like in his book, writes uh, in how to influence people and win friends. He suggests that uh, within every uh, argument or debate that we might have, there is like for him, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with this, is that you always have to take some kind of effort to make the other person feel good, especially when you're breaking bad news. And some of the techniques that he recommends is listing off some of the positive things. And and these are not necessarily outward lies. It could be like, whoa, I really like the way that you set the table. Whoa, I really like the way you put the dishes in the dishwasher. And I hope that you can put the dishes away in the cabinet just as splendidly as you put them away in the dishwasher. So you're kind of leveling a criticism at somebody uh, but at the same time, you're doing it in a way that kind of preserves their integrity. So you can, you can level criticism. You can tell people that they've done something wrong, but it needs to be sandwiched. I like this, I like this visual of like a cheeseburger, for example. So the upper bun is positivity, positivity, positivity. The meat in the middle might be a little negative. Like you may want to work on that. And then you kind of close it off on the bottom of the bun is more positivity. So you still get your point across. You're still delivering a hard truth, but it's nicely packaged and nicely sandwiched. Uh, what are your thoughts, Claire? Yeah, I, I think there's a, you know, there's a classic approach to sort of putting spin on your conversations and understanding who you're talking to and, um, you know, trying to get the greatest outcome based on that. And I think that it's an easy way to go through life. It's, um, I think sometimes very effective, especially in business and, um, just in kind of social graces, Uh, But I've really trended, at least in the last few years, to kind of resist the urge to do that. Um, I'm a a very agreeable person. And so I think I spent a lot of time just kind of trying to be funny. And, you know, I I think I'm also pretty high. I'm a a high feeler. So I I can pretty quickly take on someone else's emotions and I want to kind of make the conversation have a best outcome to reflect that or mirror it in some way. Um, And I think after a while that gets to be really exhausting and sort of anxiety producing. And 
even to take it further, Peterson would say it almost is coming from a place of ego because what, what I think you're starting to do when you interact with people in this sort of, I mean, manipulative is a little bit harsh, but in a, in a graceful sort of way is you're saying that you think you know what's best for them, or you think you know them, or you think you're going to try to get to some place, let's call it A, Mm -hmm. but then you're limiting the entire experience to only getting to A. Do you think, Um, Claire, that uh, Carnegie's method is kind of manipulative? Are you suggesting there's a level of like deception or manipulation in that the sandwich isn't really an authentic sandwich? Yeah, I think so. Or, or even to kind of the classic like Kantian versus utilitarian view that you're, you're, you're using that conversation to get to some end, some outcome versus just being there in the moment live there. So, so I, I do think that there is an element when you reread that book that feels just a tiny bit slimy. Now, here, I'm actually, I would consider myself to be a bit of a utilitarian. I, I like results. I like to uh, move forward and plow, plow forward, so to speak. And I think that I, I disagree with you a little bit here because I think that if you're prefacing what you're saying with lies, like if you're lying to the person and saying, like if you, let's say, had a, a cleaner in your house, and they didn't clean anything or they cleaned it in a really half-hearted way. And you say, whoa, I love the way that you did the refrigerator. I love the way you did the sink. That's lying and that's deception. And that's something I certainly don't like approve of. I I think that that's just false and and wrong. And I, I totally agree with Peterson on that front. However, everybody does something good. Like if you had a cleaner in your house and you noticed that she did a great job on the windows, I don't see any harm in pointing out that she did a good job on those windows, assuming that she actually did. And then kind of following that up with a criticism from like an efficiency standpoint, I I don't see that as being that wrong. Yeah. I mean, as you use that example, I think I, I'm an over complimenter, especially around that when I know someone has put effort into something, but I don't know. I don't see that. I I get now it is embellishment. I just don't see it as manipulative because I truly do feel that way. You know, if I were trying to get some outcome from them and so I was buttering them up, then yes. But I think if, if I truly feel that you could use my positivity and I do think the job was done well, then to your point, um, yeah, of course, why not? Right. So I, I think, I, I think it's like making that distinction of like when it, because Carnegie, I, I, I don't, know exactly what Carnegie's intentions was. And you might be right. There might be a slightly slimy, manipulative, uh, like way that he's, he's a very, like every chapter is extremely positive. So it's hard to think of him as being like a slimy, whatever manipulative guy. But I think that if we are authentic, like if we have authenticity in what we're saying, then his technique works. So if you are, if you are accentuating true positivity and true authenticity, you're not committing like a, uh, like a sin, so to speak, in, in, in helping people. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's this kind of idea of putting yourself in the right frame of, frame of mind um, for, to be able to kind of listen openly and not project your own ego, as we talked about earlier, um, and kind of clearing, clearing that out. And conversely, let's just say we 100% followed the Peterson view on this. And mm-hmm. I was blunt honest. And I, I had a cleaning lady and she came in and I was like, you, didn't, you did not clean the stove well at all. And I just started with that. Now I do invite the possibility of something very explosive happening in that present moment. Now I was true to myself and 100% honest, but is she going to then, you know, she's probably going to clean in a resentful way. That relationship might be damaged. She may not want to clean my house again. And, and maybe she's an awesome cleaner, but for whatever reason, she didn't clean that stove. The other thing, and, and this kind of goes back to the Forbes article, is this idea that if I just am criticized, 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 the people taking that criticism say, man, I can't do 
anything right in this person's book. Like they don't see what a wonderful job I did on those windows. They don't see what a wonderful job I did on the floors. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm not going to try and win their, uh, their affirmations anymore because they're just negative and everything I do is wrong. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, the question then becomes, how do we, how do we ensure that we can put ourselves in that open, positive frame of mind every time? Because truthfully, sometimes we just can't, we don't, we're not feeling it. We have whatever jealousy or internal feelings are allowing that sort of frame of positivity to come through. I mean, I think in the Carnegie example that his, his approach is that kind of yes, yes. So if you want, if you want some to get someone to do something, get them to say yes a couple times early on. Um, and so it's yes about something that you, you can agree on, right? To kind of like warm up, warm it up. But I do think there's almost a physics element there that like when you say no sort of to anything in life, it's just so much harder to say yes again. It's like going from Sunday to Monday. Just the kinetic movement of already being going somewhere is so much easier to move then to start up again. And so I'm, you know, there's that improv concept of yes. And I do think when, when we're in the right frame of mind, we're almost already oriented to yes. We're open. We're, we have radical openness to life. It's just kind of like that. And therefore it's so much easier to give feedback in a kind way. It just becomes hopefully more it's, it's transparent. Yeah. You know, it's, it's actually funny. You mentioned the yes, yes moment. I actually thought that that was actually more manipulative because it kind of reminded me of Pavlov's dog. It's like you're getting them to salivate. Yes, 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 yes. And then you're like training them to, to take that criticism. So I, I thought if anything in the book was a little slimy, it, it was uh, probably that. And that, yeah, that was, yeah, it's a good example because everyone is like, I think if someone's at, if, if someone was trying a salesman selling me something and they tried to ask me a question to say, yes, I think I would know, right. You would, <laughs> You would quickly be like, okay, I know what you're doing here. I think that if you're using just pure manipulation, you're committing the cardinal sin of underestimating the person that you're talking to. You're assuming that you're very smart and I can just like manipulate you into doing some seedy thing that I want you to do and so forth. Yeah. And Peterson says, I don't want to be the hero in someone else's story. And I think there's an element of of that also that what kind of say, you know, we have to really check why do we want to help some, why do we think we're better? Like what is going on there? Because often that person getting there on their own well, is their own story, you know, and, and that's their path to kind of figure out, um, you know, it makes me think of Taleb's kind of concept of anti-fragility that putting pressure or tension on a system often makes it stronger, you know, and, and that system can come back even stronger than it was before. And so it's to your point, what kind of, um, when, you know, making life easy or soft or just no big deal, peace, love and flowers for people, often isn't actually going to help them in the long run. You know, this reminds me of a story. So uh, in seventh grade, I actually won like a a token trophy for like basketball participation. But anyone who knows me knows I suck at basketball. I'm just terrible. I'm the worst person in the world. I have a complete aversion to the sport. But there was this good hearted teacher that was like, you know, I kind of want to make him feel good. I'm, I'm going to give him like a participation trophy or something. I actually like maybe a year later ended up throwing that trophy away in the garbage. Cause I actually knew, I knew that that trophy was an inauthentic gesture. I knew that this was uh, like false positive reinforcement. And I, I, I think that it, like you said, like speaking exactly what you said about soft and, and, and making it very comfortable, like, I think if, if the mattress becomes too soft, like we risk destroying the truth. And I, I think that that's the, the grave danger is that if, we, if we're padding the sandwich with fake bread, then, then, then we don't really celebrate what's really awesome about somebody mm-hmm. and we don't really find fault in what's wrong with them. But, but to that point of, of the trophies, it's equally or it's also detrimental to a child that when they do accomplish someone, something no one is there to, to look 
or to, to appreciate them for it. And so there is that, like, you can't just say no, the, the, the burden then becomes to really watch those around us and, and truly like acknowledge when something is significant and to, and to, and to truly hold that and like hold it up. And that's some, you know, that's a hard thing to do all the time. Definitely. I, I think that the pendulum has probably swung more too much, maybe in the positive side. And, and perhaps maybe this is a reaction to like, you know, the 1930s and forties and fifties and fascism and these visions of like nuns hitting your wrist for getting a arithmetic problem wrong. And, and we kind of swung in this opposite direction where it's like everything is soft and cushy and really palpable and when we enjoy it we, we oh yes oh, that's awesome whoa you, right. you know you picked up your pencil and you copied the heading nice job like we, we were in this world of like false praise yeah. and i think that's as dangerous as like being in an overly draconian society where it's like yeah. no that was wrong that was wrong and i think that speaks to the human inability to moderate like that, that's, what's really at fault here is we just, we can't moderate and have like a middle ground. Yeah. Yeah. And you do, it's funny you call it a pendulum because I think at least in American generations, it's so obvious to me in my family. So my, so grandparents were kind of the, that boomer generation. They were busy. They were like pretty social. They were mostly hippies. Uh, they, and, and it created kind of this, these latchkey kids, these, my parents' generation who were, who are like hyper productive became sort of the yuppie up and comer because they, they, they had to balance out from this kind of hippie, you're on your own and they were (laughs) on their own and then they did really well. And then they became very over, you know, coddling to this generation of kids that then I think now is just kind of like free love, whatever, because we, you know, we go do this interesting back and forth. And so to your point, wouldn't it be nice if we could find a middle ground? Yeah. You know, your, your story is, it's, it's almost of my own. So my, my parents are both boomers. I wouldn't call them like necessarily like easygoing, but my grandparents were, you know, world war two generation. And my grandma would always tell me these stories of like, yeah, you know, if I was seen at dinner, I would get slept, you know, like, like, it was like the right. most repressive childhood. Like this is in like, Nazi occupied Belgium. So you can just imagine like wow. tensions are extremely hard. And like, you know, like, they kind of lived by the mantra of children are to be seen and not to be heard. Like if, right. if adults, if a, if a guest came into your house, it was expected that the children just hide in a closet. And then that was not child abuse. That was standard parenting practices for that time period and then like you said the boomers come along and say whoa like that's totally oppressive and let's just you know be super welcoming and soft and and loving with our kids uh i don't think my parents were like that at all but i I do see that some people have that where it's just like yay optimism praise 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 and i think us as uh generation x millennials or generation uh, z we have the ability to look at history and be like, okay, the way the World War II generation was raised was too right. draconian, but the way the baby boomers are raising kids is too loosey-goosey. Right. Let's kind of get in the middle. It's not, it's not right. to swing in the other direction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's funny, I, I'm really curious about what, eight, nine, 10, 11 year olds are thinking right now, because I know that that those kids are, they're very smart. They're already online. And I'm just so curious about what they even think about the generations, you know, five, 10 years above them, because I just am fascinated to see what the next 20 years brings. Yeah. I, I, like I, I work with kids and Unfortunately, I think the baby boomer paradigm is still in play. It's still loosey-goosey. And it's still this like no discipline, no rules, and and, like everyone is fabulous no matter what it is that they do. I'm hoping, and, and this is my hope, that when people of our generation kind of take on more power, that we'll be able to center. We'll we'll finally Mm -hmm. be able to throw it into the middle and bring balance to the force, so to speak. (laughs) So when we think about this question of 
of success, especially in that context of, of these generations and of kids, what does that dynamic look like? What does success look like in the eyes of the, the parents of your students? So I, I, I don't think my students have baby boomers, let's say, as, right, as parents. Right. They're, a little young, they're younger than that. They might have like older generation Xers. And they're still kind of of the attitude of like their attitude is still kind of on the looser end of, of things. Like, you know, she, she did that project or she's really trying. And, you know, I'm like, I'm like, ma'am, your daughter hasn't done a single homework assignment all year long, but they're still of the like, well, she tries really hard and like, you know, where's your compassion and she won't be able to go to prom and graduation. So they're kind of still like the kids of today are still getting the very soft parenting strategy and it's 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 weird for me because my parents are boomers but they weren't soft so it's Mm. it's funny not every boomer is soft but a lot of them were a lot a lot of them do raise their kids in that very soft way and they're soft but it's also like you have three sat tutors and and you know there's a there's a expectation of achievement that is not soft um, some, I, I would say it depends on the, uh, social class. So I think if course. you're, if your parents are like doctors and lawyers, and there's just a strong lineage of like, we don't fail in this family, then you do, you do see some negative, uh, you do see like a negative trickle down of like, oh my God, my, my parents will kill me if I get like a B plus. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would argue you actually see that in people who have immigrated to the, like mm-hmm. people who have migrated to the United States tend to be very tough on their kids. Very, right. very, very tough. I would say if you're native born middle class, you tend to have the softness. That, that yeah. again, that's just my observation in the classroom. Yeah, and I think that's, I think there's also a parents aside, there is a sort of self, there's a, there's a, a tension that gets put on first generation kids that's built, that builds that strength also in them that they need to, they need to succeed, not just for their parents, but there is a, this is a new journey and, and that kind of a sense of autonomy that I think really so many people aren't feeling now, you know, just, just have what is my own meaning? What am I, what do I own? Who am I? I think across, you know, kids and adults alike today um, are really grappling for that. Absolutely. You know, I always get this thing. It's like, do you really want your parents to like chastise you for not getting an A in every subject? And, and there's some truth in that. Like we don't, no one wants to have, and it goes back to what we originally said. Like if your parent is like B plus in science, that has to be an A you get to this level of frustration where it's like, man, no matter what I do, I can't please these people. But on the other end of that, if you're failing every single subject or just marginally passing them and your parent just thinks that's okay or permissible, that's just as dangerous as the parent that chastises you for getting one B plus. And I think Carnegie actually mentions this in his method that you could be like, wow, this report card is stellar. I hope on the next report card that your grade in math or in science is just as stellar as your other subjects. So it's, it's a way of like, like he's not accepting something that's mediocre, but at the same time, he's acknowledging that the report card overall was really satisfactory. And then tying that in to like, let's take this one little subject and make it just as awesome as the other subjects. I think that's brilliant parenting right there. Yeah. And that positive enforcement is on the positive things is so beneficial and um he has that quote in the end of there a man convinced against against his will is of the same opinion still and i think that you know so much of us understanding what's right and wrong and what's good and what we want to do and really wanting to get a's we have to come to those conclusions by ourselves and goodness knows it's much easier to do that without someone kind of taking all the autonomy out of it for you What's the fun in that? Yeah, I agree. All right, let's let's use a hypothetical example, okay? Okay. Imagine we've got a parent in front in front of you, and then let's say we're a school administrator, and and they need to get their vaccinations. And let's say this parent is anti-vaccination; they just they don't believe in the science of it. And as an administrator, you're in a really tough position because on one hand 
you want to put the safety of the child first. You want that child to get vaccinated and you want them to go to school. And by doing that, you have to kind of be very direct with that person and be very truthful. But then Carnegie kind of comes into the picture and says, how do we phrase this in a fun, loving, like, I see your point of view, but you need to do this. Like, how, how, how Claire, would you deal with that parent? What, what do you think is the right balance of truth and sandwiching it nicely? Yeah, so I mean, I've, the first thing that comes to mind is helping anyone see you know, helping her, this mother, anyone sort of see the multiple perspectives and the, the in cause and effects at play um, and the multiple kind of people involved. I think every decision, every sort of cell, every atom is made up of so many other things and is interconnected. And so I think showing this mom, hey, you know, I got 300 kids at this school let me tell you about them. Let me tell you about their varying medical conditions. Let me tell you about the um, legal implications and what we have to struggle with to pay our insurance and financially as an institution. Let me tell you about some news about, you know, similar schools who have had outbreaks and the implications of those. And so just trying to plant the conversation in cause and effect. When you, when we, when we do this, this is what could potentially happen. Um, I think can be motivating, but the challenge in this, in this example is there's something I think bigger at play for this mom than just this one choice. Like this decision in particular has some sort of an ideological component to come to unpack. Um, and in that way, it's kind of like ego centered in a way that's a little loaded, right? You can't just unpack it with logic. See, that's see the way I would handle this is I, I agree with what you said about here's the kids in my school. If I met with that parent, the first thing I would do would just listen to whatever right, it is right, that they right, believe right. on vaccinations. And no matter how ridiculous it was, like vaccines are used by aliens to control us, whatever it is it, that's coming out of this woman's mouth, I would just listen and be like, hmm. I would then kind of just be neutral and be like, you know, tell me about these aliens or tell me about the, and now obviously as an administrator, my time is pressing. I can't, I can't like have a three hour Joe Rogan podcast over this with this lady, <laughs> but like I, I would maybe start asking some questions and then there'll probably come a point where she'll not be able to answer that question. Like, well, how exactly did the aliens get that into the vaccine? And oh, oh, and the doctors are in on this too. Oh, okay. Then I would kind of, you know, she feels a little silly. And then instead of just being like, aha, you're a buffoon, you kind of then lay into the like, well, we have some other kids here and mm -hmm. this and this, and that if this person contracted polio, it could be the end of them and so forth. Mm -hmm. And now it's like you've torn down their, their dangerous mm -hmm. ideology. Like they have a dangerous vaccine ideology and you've torn it down in a very friendly way. Mm. You're exactly right, because who knows what you could uncover during that conversation. Maybe the aliens has something to do with some completely different issue that you could start talking about that, you know, this is, uh, this is not related to these vaccines at all. Um, and so I think truly listening and asking questions and coming to the converse, you know, really constantly in the conversation checking why am I reacting like this? Why do I feel like this? You know, trying to just kind of check those balances, um, you, you sometimes can get somewhere in it. And yeah, I mean, you know, everyone's reality is just, they're completely true to them. It's a right. hundred, like it's, it's really it's difficult to fathom that. Um, but getting there and, and just, I think sometimes it's also the throwing, it throws someone off guard because it's not how they expect you to respond. Yeah. You know? And so not, not coming from it from a place of fear and like just looking at it right in the eye and, and then it, that kind of can uh, disarm someone. Yeah. And you don't put them in the defensive posture immediately. Like if, if I sat that woman down and I'm like, your child needs to be vaccinated. And you know, now she's already in defensive posturing and now she, she, she literally like people's body language actually changes. Right, right, you can right. see their shoulders stiffen up and they, they kind of like, they, they almost are like protecting their face or so, so what, you know, you'd be amazed what you would see. And if you put her into defensive shell mode right away, then 
you're logically right. Like you're, 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 you have the truth on your side. Like vaccines are awesome for you and every kid should have it. But you lose the argument because you immediately put her into a defensive posture. Right. And now she's walking away with like, well, I guess I'm just not sending my kids to this school anymore and so forth. And maybe that's inevitable. Maybe that does happen at the end of the conversation. But I'm like, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to that other person to figure out a way if we can make this work and explore all avenues. Now, I think the cardinal sin in all of this is that if that conversation ended with, whoa, I never saw it that way. I think you're totally right. I, we should not vaccinate kids anymore. Like if you just surrender and, and, and believe in a falsehood, then that, that would be the ultimate sin, I think. Right. Or say, pretend like you believe in the falsehood and then roll, close the door and roll your eyes behind your back. Yes, yes. And I, I, I think that, th- that, that, again, you can be wrong in the argument by going in too strong and, and getting mm-hmm. them in the defensive posture. But you're also wrong if you just completely lay down like a doormat and submit. Again, it requires like a degree of moderation. Yeah. Yeah, and, and in, in all truth-telling it's not as cut and dry as just saying the words that are the truth. You know, I think that really understanding what the truth is in a situation means, means doing that active listening. And it doesn't necessarily mean, I guess in this vaccine example, it doesn't mean you have to flat out disagree with her and say, she's an idiot and here's what's wrong. Like she might be wanting a, hmm. The, the example that's easy to kind of show this is the, you know, the, the Nazi guard hiding Anne Frank. The Nazi comes to, to your house and says, is Anne Frank here? Do you tell the truth or do you protect someone's life? And I think in this example, what, what, the, what the guard is really asking is, are you going to let me kill Anne Frank? You know, and so really understanding what someone is asking in a situation and what the what that version of truth is. And maybe there is some reason that this woman, this mom wants autonomy or control over her kid. Like what is the what's really going on here? I, I think I think you're absolutely right. And then to, you know, answer like the Anne Frank question, my answer would be that the woman that lies to the Nazi guard and says, No, Anne Frank is not here is actually protecting a higher truth. Like she's actually preserving a higher truth. And that is, we should not just slaughter Jews for no good reason whatsoever. So yes, like she's using a white lie, but that white lie is in propagation of a higher moral truth. Mm. And I, I think that that white lie is different than, whoa, that dress looks fabulous on you. And, and I'm using this as kind of a manipulative tool. So I think if we're using the white lie as a manipulative tool to further some other means, whether good or bad, then that's a destructive white lie because eventually it will unravel. But if that lie is in the propagation of a uh, higher truth. And the other thing is, is that I think if that lady after the, like, you know, it, it's hard to know in the moment if the Nazis are going to lose. But I think something that she could do for herself is be like, yes, I hid Anne Frank. And when a Nazi guard asked me about it, I lied to him. And just being truthful when it's safe to do so. You know, mm-hmm. like that's another thing that people don't think about is that like, you must be truth in this moment. But I'm like, if my life is in danger, then I may not have the opportunity. I may not have the ability. It's kind of like, I can't control that my life is in danger, but as soon as my life is no longer in danger, I then have the power to be truthful. Yeah. And a similar thing goes for admitting what you know and what you don't know in a situation, you know, like just like you might not have to, you know, timing is relevant. And when you're telling the truth, also admitting that you know a little bit of the truth and a little bit not and you lied about this like just coming to a conversation with the parts that you think you're going to be right about like i'm going to push these ones for these ones and the you know the gray area and truthfully laying that on the table to me is much better than just just picking this one because you're not kind of showing your whole consciousness yes yes absolutely and going going back to how we started this it's like if I was debating with somebody and then they were like, man, I, I don't have the answer to that. I don't know or whatever. My respect for you goes up threefold because right. it's just like, 
this is a truthful source of information and they're so truthful in their source of information that they just readily admit like i don't know that word i don't know what you're talking about or i don't have the answer for that you you can see that they're they're the type of person that's probably going to open up the dictionary or their phone and look up whatever it is that you're talking about and then actually know what it is that you're talking about like you i actually have more confidence that you're gonna the next day read up on whatever it is that I was saying and become stronger. And in the long run, you're going to make a much better leader, even though in the moment you have weakness in the long run, I'm going to trust you so much more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all know those people that just have something about them that, you know, people gravitate towards. And there is a confidence associated with very transparent forthright people that just seem to be living in their own truth that is is really addicting and, and people just kind of want to be by it and it's it's funny you know you can really forgive people on a lot by just saying that well that's you know jenny being jenny right like there's just a purity in 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 that so i want to uh, shift the focus a little bit to the importance of one-to-one -one conversations and sometimes when there's an audience watching, we automatically go into more uh, defensive posturing. So Claire, could you speak about the yeah. importance of one-to-one? -one? Yeah, I think that, you know, part of the sort of subtlety of, of having a conversation and really listening truthfully is knowing that different people are, diff are different. People take feedback in very different ways. Um, and, you know, Jung would equate this to, you know, the, your, your different functions, that these are really sort of, they're both born and they're developed over time, but we really have certain proclivities of people, whether that's to um, introversion or extroversion or feeling or thinking that just impacts how we interact with the world. And so I think knowing that and knowing that about ourselves as well as other people is a way to come at, come at conversations um, in a way in which you can be successful because you're kind of being manipulated or like you're understanding, you have a little bit more info that you come into, but also, you know, not, not in a way that in which you're using them. Um, but the issue with kind of understanding people's proclivities is it's really tough to do in a group. You know, it's hard to have a conversation with people of many different types. Um, and of course, then you're dealing with each string that's interacting all of those people. And that's a really complex dynamic. And so something that I found to be effective is, is kind of the art of the one-on-one. -on -one. Um, yeah. This I first kind of had my, my breakthrough because I watched way too much Survivor during quarantine. And <laughs> um, it's an awful show, but you do start to see kind of social dynamics. And what you find is that two tribe members can kind of go scurry off into the jungle for 10 minutes and suddenly the, the, the future of the game is, is thrown off. Because when you get one-on-one -on -one with someone, you really somehow open up to what's really going on. I think that's a part of a barrier with technology too, is we're all kind of shouting into a void. Once you finally kind of call someone, you hear that tone of their voice, it's so much easier to have a transparent conversation. Um, and so I think that these kind of two ideas of knowing that we all come with our own baggage and, um, you know, you can be radically open and radically honest in a conversation, but that sh should and does look different for other different types of people. Um, and then trying to approach feedback, I think one-on-one -on -one is just really paramount, um, especially, you know, when you're trying to give someone hard feedback or kind of tell them how you're really feeling. And I, I, I think that people are so much more willing to be vulnerable alone in a one-to-one -one setting than with other people. Like they're more like, if you've ever been in an office before, you know that people are more likely to cry in an, like in a, in a more, like they're not going to cry in front of everybody and make a giant right. scene. Although there might be a few drama people in your, <laughs> wherever you work, but usually it's, it's a very private affair. And I, I think that like, if you, if, if you're talking with somebody and they know that something's wrong about them, but they know that if they admit it in that huge meeting in front of all the other primates that they're surrounded with, they, they know that their, their value and their esteem is going to lower in all of their eyes. Whereas if it's just you on a one-to-one -one situation, 
and they trust me and they, they trust, like you can trust your boss or you could trust one person, but that doesn't mean that you trust everyone you work with. There, there will always, or even in a family, you might trust your mom, but be a little wary on your dad. You know, I, I hate to say it, but that's, that's the reality of the world we live in. And even if you trust your mom, if your dad is watching, you might still double down on whatever it is that you believe because you know that your secret and your vulnerability is not safe with that person, but it might be safe with the other person. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in all of those conversations, especially the, the more char- emotionally charged ones, that the words that are spoken are going to be really transformative um, to to both parties, I mean, obviously mostly to the person that's thinking and talking them out. And so, you know, we just really got to hope that both, you know, both parties are there to hear that in a way that's productive because even the way that you, you know, your face reacts when someone says something to you is often all someone needs to know where they go from there or how they feel. So Peterson says, you know, be, be careful who you give good feedback to and careful who you who you give bad feedback to because, um, or, or good news and bad news, because, you know, it, it does take some wind out of your sails when someone doesn't, when your expectations aren't met. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so why, why do we think that some people are, have an easier time being vulnerable and admitting they're wrong while others double down on, on their wrongful convictions? Yeah, I think this question is hard for me because I'm not sure it's kind of a nature or nurture issue, right? Or a blank slate theory definitely comes into this that are there some people that are just more defensive, like they're just a little bit less agreeable, they're more defensive, um, and they're just a little bit more difficult? Or, you know, is that the response to jealousy and insecurity that's bubbling up in a certain situation? And um, are, you know, do we all have that? So I'm not exactly sure. And I'm not exactly sure that, you know, you could pinpoint the exact mixture that you would want in terms of, of you know, willingness to do this. Um, but it's a, it's a difficult one. Yeah. I mean, focusing on the, the, uh, the nature part of it, if your environment is toxic, and you know that there's people waiting in the rafters to prey on your vulnerability, to undermine your authority. Well, that environment right off the bat is going to make you want to double down that much more. And you might be a pretty humble person, but you know that if you're too humble, uh, they're going to come after you and sort of undermine your authority. I, I think right. that 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 right off the bat can take a, a good humble person and make them a bit arrogant just because they have to protect themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, we I think in in job dynamics we come in with expectations. There's people above and below us from from all sides really reflecting a mirror back to us. Same thing, I think, um, of, of relationships. And I mean, calling someone up, especially those who know us the best and, and having honest conversations is just often far more taxing than just like faking it in a big group of people and blending in. Well, one thing, and, and I, I want to get your opinion on this, Claire. So one thing I think uh, Carnegie talks about is when you're having these like intimate one-to-one conversations, admitting like admitting something that you're bad at so if i am having a one-to-one with you and i have negative criticism that i need to to dump on you if i say something negative about myself and i'm vulnerable like i'm, I'm basically opening my chest up to you and be like go ahead take a stab take a free punch like that automatically relaxes the person that you're talking to because you're like whoa this guy just you know showed me their bare chest and just showed me that you know, some fatal weakness about themselves. And now I'm empowered because I know that about them. What do you think of that as being like uh, a technique to use in these kind of one-to-one situations? Yeah, I think it's a really good one um, for many reasons. First, this sort of leading by example is happening. So you're, you can't really tell someone how to act, but slowly they'll just watch it and take it up. And um and so hopefully then they will show some transparency back to, to back to you. As you're saying, it just relaxes them. 
Um, and then I think there's this idea of like, in every conversation where we're having a sort of energy exchange and we're depositing and withdrawing energy and information. And so I think if you can kind of early on um, make some deposits, like give, you know, give a little bit, it's easier than to have some withdrawal, to get some withdrawals later on. And I think that that really works for, for too. Like, I like, it's an emotional banking system. You have to make is. deposits and withdrawals. I love it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think it also just helps people, you know, communication and language is so flawed and it's such a, a, a shoddy tool for us to try to really get inside each other's heads. And so I think often an example just kind of grounds it in something. Um, and so I think often with work, if I'm trying to get someone to do something or understand something, use, you know, grounding it in some personal experience and some vulnerability makes it all just a little less scary. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a great takeaway. And I, I think like the largest takeaway is that the fear of being vulnerable prevents you from success. Like, like, like all of these fears are ultimately going to cost you success in the workplace. They're going to cost you meaningful relationships with loved ones like like the the toll is going to be so high whereas the initial embarrassment and the initial vulnerability and the oh my god i'm no good at this that's very temporary but the long-term effects and the long-term accomplishments that you can gain are 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 not going to be as great if you're not willing to to at least acknowledge you have blind spots absolutely with that being said, this concludes the third episode of podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod. And I'm Claire Bevan. We will see you next time.